I wrote this in November and December of 1985. I did write this 100% with my 40-year-old typewriter. I didn't have a ghostwriter. I wanted it in my own words. I hope to pass on some of my theories of business to our people, and I hope these theories are used in our business for as long as the Les Schwab company continues. Should we fail to follow these policies towards customers and employees, I would prefer that my name be taken off of the business. There could be some interest in this book with people who are interested in business. If so, you are invited to read the book. I hope in some way this book might help you in the business world. If you are not interested in business, this book will bore you. And if I were you, I wouldn't waste my time reading it. All right, so that's from the forward of the book that I read this week and the one I'm going to talk to you about today, which is Les Schwab, Pride and Performance, Keep It Going, and it was written by Les Schwab. All right, so I want to talk first, before I jump into the rest of the book, um, how I discovered, uh, it's like how I found out about this book. So at this point, by this point in time, I've done, I don't know what, three or four uh, podcasts on various books that I've read, uh, read about Charlie Munger. Um, I've done a podcast on every single uh, shareholder letter that Warren Buffett has ever written. And I did a podcast on um, two other books on Warren Buffett. These are all in the archives. If you haven't listened to them yet, I, uh, obviously you have access to them anytime you want. Go back and listen to them. But they bring up Les Schwab over and over and over and over again. So it's very simple. Like I've learned a lot from both Buffett and Munger, especially Munger. And if they tell, you know, if they have, they say, they always talk about the operators and the other business people that they admire and they respect. And then if there's books on, the, on them, they explicitly say, hey, you should go read this book. So let me just read some of the, the various little quotes that I've collected uh, in this regard. So here's Charlie Munger. He's giving, uh, it's at the, the Berkshire meeting in 2004. And he says, if you want to read one book that will demonstrate really shrewd compensation systems and a whole chain of small businesses, read the autobiography of Les Schwab, who has a bunch of tire shops all over the Northwest. And he made a huge fortune in one of the world's really difficult businesses by having shrewd systems. He can tell you a lot better than we can. Warren Buffett on the book says, it's an interesting book, you know, selling tires. How do you make money doing that? Um, then he talks, uh, there's a different speech. This is a speech back in 2003 at the University of California. I'm going to read a few paragraphs from this. This is Charlie Munger talking. And he says, there's a tire store chain in, nor in the Northwest, which has slowly succeeded over 50 years. The Les Schwab tire store chain. It just ground ahead. It started competing with the stores that were owned by the big tire companies that made all the tires, the Goodyear's and so forth. And of course, the manufacturers favored their own stores. I'll talk to you more about Les's... Um, view on that later. The, uh, their, their, their stores had a big cost advantage. Later, Les Schwab rose in competition with huge price discounters like Costco and Sam's Club, and before that, Sears and so forth. And yet here's Schwab now with hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. And here's Les Schwab in his 80s with no education having done the whole thing. How did he do it? I don't see a whole lot of people looking like a light bulb has come on. Well, let's think, uh, let's think about it through, let's think about it with some microeconomic fluency. And he's going to talk about what, like a brief summary of what he believes was, uh, like led to some of the success that Les had. So he says, is there some wave that Schwab could have caught? The minute you ask the question, the answer pops in. The Japanese had zero position in tires and they got big. So this guy must have ridden that wave some in the early times. Then the slow-flowing success has to have some other causes. And what probably happened here, obviously, is this guy did one, hell of, he did one hell of a lot of things right. 
And among the things that he must have done right is he must have harnessed what um, Mankill, Manquil, I don't know how to pronounce that name, calls the superpower of incentives. He must have had very clever incentive structure driving his people and a clever personnel uh, selection system, etc. And he must be pretty good at advertising, which he is. He's an artist. So he had to get a wave in the Japanese tire invasion, the Japanese being as successful as they were, and then a talented fanatic, remember that word fanatic, had to get a hell of a lot of things right and keep them right with clever systems. Again, not that hard of an answer. But what else would be a likely cause to this peculiar success? And then now we have uh, another quote from, it's one of uh, Buffett's shareholders. I don't know which year. But he says, um, it's, it's extra tough when a fanatical, there's that word again, fanatical small competitor like Rose Blumkin, that's the, 90, the, the, the lady that um, she ran Nebraska Furniture Mart until she was like 103, uh, wind up doing hundreds of, year, hundreds of millions a year, hundreds of millions of dollars, excuse me, a year in revenue. Um, Warren Buffett famously bought her business and he talks a lot about her in his shareholder letters. Anyways, so he says it's, an extra, it's extra tough when a fanatical small competitor like a Rose Blumkin or a Les Schwab or a Sam Walton sets their sight on your particular marketplace, Buffett said. How do you compete against a true fanatic? You can only try to build the best possible moat and continuously attempt to, wi- uh, to widen it. So I wanted to bring that up at the very beginning because I think it gives you a good introduction into who Les Schwab is or was, I guess. And um, helps understand a lot of the things that I'm going to go over in the book. All right, so let me go back to the book, um, and we're gonna—I'm going to start at the very beginning. And what I love about uh, Les is that he was—he—he uh, he had a very strong opinion that you should not have a crab in the bucket mentality, and that you—that you're—you need to share everything that you learn and know with other people. And in his particular thing, he's like, I need to constantly educate my employees because like, the only way we're going to be successful is if I can work through them. And a way to work through them is to instill them with all the ideas and theories I have on how we should be running this business. So he says, this is his main thing that he talks about over and over again in the book, the one that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett always, uh, always talk about, is that he, had, uh, he understood human psychology. They said he wasn't educated, right? He's an orphan at 15. I'll get, all, I'll get there in a, in a minute. Um, but he understood how humans behave and what motivated them. So he famously sees every single... Um, store that he had was run as an individual business and then the workers in that store got 50 percent of the profits so that's what munger and buffett are talking about that you need to study his competition compensation systems this is what this is where we're going to start here because Les talks about it probably he says it's the single most important thing he ever discovered in business okay so he says i encourage you to share profits with your employees i encourage you in every way possible to build people this is your this is good for america it is good for you and it is good for your employees if you do share do it openly and honestly and don't get jealous if they start to make some money. That's the whole idea. If you make people under you successful, what happens to you? Aren't you also then successful? But if you think of yourself first, it just won't work and there's no use in tempting it. What nicer thing can you do in your life than to help young people build their lives into successful people? Not just in money, but in all ways. The older I get, the more proud I am of the profit-sharing programs and other programs that I have created. These are the ones that Munger just referenced, right? Or that I've helped, or that I have helped create. I believe so strongly that America is such a great comp- comp- country and that capitalism is the best form of government. I think we owe it to America to do our share to see that it continues. The best possible way to make it succeed is to share with people, to help people be, to help 
people be successful people. So when I'm reading this, first of all, this is why founders can even exist because for some reason, at, towards the end of the lives of entrepreneurs, they love writing down everything they learn. So all their knowledge from decades and decades of experience doesn't get lost and then we can use their ideas moving forward, right? But when I read that section, something jumped out of my mind. And so I want to talk to you about that. I'm going to put the book down for a minute. Um, another person that Munger and Buffett constantly re- refer and that a lot of people admire, a lot of entrepreneurs that are alive today talk about all they learned from James Sinegal, which is the co-founder of Costco, okay? And what Les is talking about here is like, listen, you need to forget your crab in the bucket mentality, like share everything you have and build people up. James Sinegal did this with Jeff Bezos. And I read the, this is going to come from the everything store. I read the book, what, two years ago? I don't even know how long ago. And I've never, ever, ever forgotten this. It's, I think about this all the time. So I'm going to talk a little bit about, uh, what like James is something like 30, I think he's like 30, 32 years older than Jeff was. Uh, so in the book, it talks about uh, in 2001, I think about the, the company Amazon today is vastly different, right? 19 years or whatever it is later. 2001, you know, it was a much, much smaller company. So they wind up having a meeting. They meet, um, and funny, funny enough, they meet a Starbucks inside of a Barnes and Nobles. But anyways, so it says, Cynical explained the Costco business model to Bezos. It was all about customer loyalty. Through the selection of products and individual, uh, excuse me, though the selection of products and individual categories is limited, there are copious quantities of everything there and is all dirt cheap. Costco buys in bulk and marks up everything as standard across the board 14%, even when it could charge more. It doesn't advertise at all and earns most of its gross profit from the annual membership fees. Uh, So he says, he's continuing the conversation he's having with Jeff. James is talking. He says, the membership fee is a one-time pain, but it's reinforced every time customers walk in and see a 47-inch uh, television that's $200 less than any place else. And this is a really important sentence here. It reinforces the value of the concept. Customers know they will find really cheap stuff at Costco. Now, why is the word value so important? Because James built in his, his entire uh, career off of that. He says, my approach has always been that value trumps everything. The reason people are prepared to come to our strange places to shop is that we have value and we deliver on that value constantly. Um, The Monday after that meeting, Bezos uh, met with his senior managers. Now, this is another example. I always reference that, you know, uh, same thing we're doing here. We're studying from entrepreneurs to the past. You see that every single other entrepreneur we've ever covered does the same exact thing. Jeff is no different. Now, he didn't just have a conversation with James. Like, okay, well, that's nice, and went home. He actually implemented those ideas into his business, and it fundamentally changed what Amazon is. Think about that. There was no Amazon Prime before this. Okay, so he says, uh, the Monday morning uh, meeting after, or the Monday after that meeting, Bezos, Bezos went, met with his senior managers, and announced that Amazon would immediately be cutting prices on books, music, and videos by 20 to 30%. Later, during a conference call with analysts, he observed, there are two kinds of, this is one of his most favorite quotes, there are two kinds of retailers. Those are, uh, there are those folks who try to figure out how to charge more, and there, are, and there are companies that work to figure out how to charge less. We are going to be the second, full stop. Now, that's not, that's not the end of what he learned from this. So, uh, I'm going to quote from another, this is now an article, quote, uh, analyzing like the meeting between James and Jeff. So it says, um, uh, let's see. Okay. So now this is quotes. Uh, this is actually an interview with James. Sorry. Uh, he's a tough business person talking. This is James talking about Jeff. He wanted, uh, to, 
He wanted to buy from us at 3 to 4% less than we paid for the merchandise ourselves. Those talks went nowhere. Instead, Bezos came away with, from their conversation with some deep insights about Costco's success in keeping markups small and prices low. When Amazon eventually launched its Prime membership program, the parallels to Costco's own pay, paid memberships were easy to spot. Now, this is how it ties all the way back to, um, to less. He says, uh, with Senegal too can candid with Bezos, the Costco co-founder is unrepentant about his willingness to talk shop with a younger entrepreneur trying to build a business. Perhaps that's because of his desire to see best practices spread throughout American business. Okay, so this is something Les talks about over and over again. He's laying out his theories. He's talking about all the success he's had with it. He's like, and then he says over and over again in the book, why are you not doing this? Why are more American business people doing this? What are you doing? Like, take this good idea over and over again. So um, I, I just could not help the entire time reading this book tie it to other things that I've learned in studying all these entrepreneurs. And you just see these main themes over and over again. All right. So first, uh, I'm going to go back to the book. I'm going to talk a little bit about his early years. Now, he, he, uh, Les talked about at the very beginning. He didn't have a, he didn't have a ghostwriter. He never wrote a book before. As a result, the book I have in my hand is very... Uh, it's put together very bizarrely, and I love the way it's just there's no fluff. He just writes simple, short sentences, and then he'll just go on to the next thing. I mean, it's not separated. You have like headings and stuff, but there's no like, it's not like he's, it's not even a narrative, I would say. He's just whatever happened to be on his mind that day he was writing. So I want to talk about um, his early life. And uh, this is a sentence that, two sentences that kind of sum up his father. Father Bishop was not there, he was drunk again. Um, talks about they grew up on like a like a camp like a log I don't know if it was a logging camp essentially they lived okay let me just tell you the schools <laughs> he's in eighth grade at the time the schools were just a railroad boxcar with somewhat crooked windows cut in one side of the boxcar there were three of us in the eighth grade so they're in this like this camp with other families that work for the same company in those days we had to take state exams to graduate from the eighth grade we all failed um, so it says. Uh, there's, there's like a lot of ranchers. He grew up in, in central Oregon and he considers himself very much like a rancher, a Western person. Um, so it says, uh, the farm wouldn't sell, uh, as it was the start of the, the great depression. And the bank finally took the farm back from the debt owed. So it's not what was happening to his family. Uh, my mother thought it might help my father's drinking problem. If we all moved back to Oregon, uh, we were taught to work at very young ages. It seemed the normal thing to do. Now he's going to describe his I mean, you, you, I guess you call it a home. It's, I mean, it reminds me very much of like uh, the podcast I did on Jim Clayton, who grows up in a log cabin with uh, a sibling and his two parents, no electricity, no running water, um, and then winds up selling his business for $1.7 billion to Warren Buffett like 40 years later. Uh, so we have a similar situation here with Les. He says, small, he's describing it, small two-room holes, a two-holer with no running water. Water was hauled by train from town, spigots, uh, from town, spigots were spotted around camp, and you took your bucket to the tap, filled it, and carried it to your home. Today, that would be poverty. But the homes were clean, and people had fun. There was one community shower. And so he called, he's living in a log camp, okay? So he says, now, a lot of people, you know, could, could you know, like, oh, poor, like, you know, woe is me, look at this environment. He didn't look at it like that at all. In fact, he thought that even though the people were poor and didn't have a lot of money, they were, good, they, they were still good people. So he says... I've been around the people of the log camp for the past 50, 50 or more years, and the people and the children of these people have turned out to be, much, to be much above the average citizen, both in success in business and in being a good all-around citizen. 
Um, so he's living in a logging camp, but then there's no like high school. That's the so he has to he has to um, take a bus of some sort to high school, and then he has to be boarded by another family during the week, and he come back to the logging camp on the on the weekend. So this is a lesson high school. He says we missed much of the school activities and pretty much felt like outsiders. One of my biggest fears was that my father would come to school on Friday drunk. It would haunt me all week as I was proud, poor, but I had a lot of pride. And he talks about his, uh, the effect that alcoholism had on his family. This was killing my mother. It was sad times for the Schwab family. So he realizes he's taught to work for, uh, at a young age and he wants to make his own money. So uh, he starts to immediately deliver newspapers and he's extremely good at it. So he says, I immediately started to deliver newspapers. I remember so well my first route. I ran the route for two months in order to get enough money to buy the fir- my first used bike. Okay, so that's how poor he was. Most people are delivering, most other boys uh, of his age were delivering bikes, uh, newspapers on a bike. Later, he gets a car. But he builds this entire newspaper. This is an important part of his life to understand him as well. He builds this entire business while he's in high school, right? And then he, he starts off just like he does his tire business. Okay, well, I, I don't have a bike. I got to use what I have. You know what I have? I have two legs and a lot of and, and youthful energy. So I'm going to run down and, and deliver the papers, right? Then I'm going to save my money. I'm going to buy a bike. Then I'm going to get so good, I'm going to start adding other routes. Oh, wow. Now I have other routes. I'm making more money. I buy a car. He eventually starts making more money from his newspaper delivery business than his high school principal made. Uh, he says, my father died almost to the day of my 16th birthday. He was found dead in front of a moonshine joint. Now, there's some crazy sentences here. We thought there might have been foul play, but it didn't really matter. He had gone so far downhill and he was working for 50 cents a day for a rancher. It sounds like my father was all bad. This isn't true. Why and how a man can let this happen, the Lord only knows. Being a person who took one drink and couldn't stop until he completely gave out, he ran downhill from there on. But he was a hardworking, extremely strong man, a gentleman, but a raving maniac when drunk. It certainly brought sad days to our family. Uh, His his mom's going to die very soon after this as well. Going back to... Um, what I was just talking about, how he, made, he was able to make a lot of money in high school. He says, I rode my bike during the week, even though I was getting to the age where a 16-year-old boy didn't like being, being seen delivering newspapers, especially on a bike. But money, in this case, was much more important than pride. Uh, so he winds up taking over all these routes. He says, there were eight or nine routes in the town, and I took over the whole town during that summer. Uh, I was now making about 175 to $200 per month, and I wasn't even 17 yet, in the middle of a depression. The high school principal only made 150 per month. I think I thought I was already a man. Uh, he doesn't hide the fact that he's extremely uh, confident. and co- He calls himself cocky over and over again. And uh, I'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. But he, he thinks it's a huge asset, actually. Uh, actually, and it's on the very next page. So this is, uh, know that myself as being cocky was helpful. And then I want to talk to you about um, Les's ability to study more than anybody else did. All right, so he says, uh, the one thing I did know was newspaper circulation work. And I knew a lot more about it than the two minority owners. So he's saying he studied, uh, uh, he studied this particular aspect of the newspaper industry more than there's three people that owned the main newspaper he's working for, which is called the, I think it's called the Ben Bulletin. And they had one main guy and then two minority uh, partners. Um, well, let me, you know what, before I get there, let me, I'll go back to that. Let me read, finish this, this paragraph. So he says, the circulation, this is important to know his personality too, because he talks over and over again how um, he's a master at analyzing other businesses and seeing what they do wrong. 
And then just avoiding that. It's very similar to like Charlie Munger says, I'm not trying to be brilliant. I'm just trying to avoid being stupid. Les did the same thing. So he says, the circulation end of the newspaper work is usually regarded as the lower end on the prestige ladder, but it's also closest to the money, right? I attempted to put, because he's selling subscriptions to newspapers too on his routes. I attempted to put some pride into the circulation work for myself and for others. I was young, sometimes cocky, but this cockiness helped me a lot going through life. Les had an abundance of confidence in himself. And think about it. Think about with the access to information and tools and that you may have if you haven't started a business yet compared to Les. Uh, parents dead at 15 or 16 years old. They, he, he's on his own. They're, they try to give him guardianship. He winds up saying, no, I'll just rent a room and figure it out myself. Um, no really no education to speak of. And it builds a company that in 2018 had $1.8 billion in sales. Okay, so there's another thing that I want to go back to here. Uh, he says, I knew uh, the one thing I didn't know was newspaper circulation work. So he's essentially saying I focused on one thing and I got really good at it. I knew more about it than, than two minority owners. So when I read that part, I thought about one of my favorite um, speeches I've ever seen. It's on YouTube. If you have access to my notes, it's in there. It's a speech by Bill Gurley. Uh, he's a partner at Benchmark. It's called Running Down a Dream, How to Succeed and Thrive in a Career You Love. Um, you can read my notes or you can just search in, in YouTube. I'd, I'd recommend uh, watching the whole talk. I think it's about an hour, okay? But he says something in there that I, that I, that I always think about. Um, and first of all, he's essentially giving a speech to, uh, I think, University of Texas MBA students about, like, you know, running down how to succeed and thrive in a career you love. Essentially what I just said, don't waste your life doing something you hate. That's what Bill's saying. Like, how do you figure this out? So he says something that directly relates to what we're talking about here with less. Um, I'm going to get to that. And I'm going to actually, you know, I'm, before I get there, I'm going to share some of the other highlights from this talk. Cause it's so interesting. Um, he talks about how he, he learned from three other people and what they did. So he says a dream job is a career where you have immense passion. Life is a use it or lose it proposition. That's kind of what I was just echoing there, right? Most humans take one career path. If you only have one shot, why not do what makes you happy? That's the entire th speech. Th that's the entire reason why he's giving the speech because he obviously sees people that don't do this. He talks about, uh, he uses the, the, the lives of Bob Dylan, uh, Bobby Knight, and Danny Meyer as examples. So I'm not going to cover all that. I'm just going to cover some highlights. Um, so he talks, uh, talks, he's like, he studies. He takes a ton of notes. He's watching the chef. He talks about this. He talks about um, a quote, one of his favorite quotes. I spent nearly two years doing the best work ever as a student. Danny Meyer, that's from, comes from Danny Meyer before he opened his restaurants. And what Bill is saying, he's like, he's most proud of the studying he did on his own, not the studying he did in college. Um, so now, he, uh, Bill says, pick a profession about which you have immense passion, a deep personal interest. Nothing will make you more successful than if you love doing what you're doing. You will work harder than anyone else because it will feel like fun. Remember what Buffett and Munger just told us. How do you compete against a fanatic? You really can't. Les is a fanatic. Bill Gurley is a fanatic. Um, everyone has the will to win. People don't have the will to practice. So what is, that? what is he talking about there? He's saying, be obsessive about learning in your field. Hone your craft constantly. Understand everything you, can, you possibly can about your craft. This is a crazy sentence. Consider it an obligation. Hold yourself accountable. Keep learning over time. Study the history. Know the pioneers. Exactly what we're doing here, isn't it? Strive to know more than anyone else about your particular craft. What did Les just tell us? Les just said, I knew more than these guys and they own the company. You should be the most knowledgeable person. It is possible to gather more information than someone else. 
Now that brings me to the most, in my opinion, probably Bill's most important point. Okay. And he says the good news. Now think about this in terms of less and all the people we've studied. The good news. If you're going to research something, this is your lucky day. Information is freely available on the internet. The bad news. You have zero excuse. Zero for not being the most knowledgeable person in any subject you want. The information is right there at your fingertips. If you adapt that mentality, it is impossible, impossible that you are not going to succeed at what you want to do. And the whole time I'm reading this and thinking about this and tying all this together, I've been, I was rereading um, some of my notes um, on, uh, excuse me, the highlights I took when I read Sam Walton's autobiography. And Sam did this exact same thing. He'd studied everything. I think in the book it says there's, no, there's not a person alive that walked in more stores than Sam Walton, even when he was vastly more successful than everybody else. He's like, no, I can still learn from these people. All right, so I'm going to skip, go, go back to the book. I'm skipping ahead. Um, he winds up working in the newspaper business for quite a uh, while. Um, so this is less at 28. I was now 28 years old. I had ambition. I wanted to go into business as I'd always wanted to be a businessman, but I didn't have any money. So the story of Les Schwab is he's got to do the best possible job at whatever job he has in front of him. And he knows if he keeps at it, eventually the opportunity is going to present itself to get his real goal. So he talked about wanting to, to be an entrepreneur when he was like 16. Now we're fast forward 12 years. He's still not there yet, right? Um, he doesn't know what kind of, he knows that he wants to be in business, but he doesn't know what kind of business. So he says, I was going through a period at this point of not knowing just what I wanted to do. I bring that up and I highlight that because everybody feels this way. I felt this, I've felt this way in the past uh, many times. Les feels this way. Uh, going back to Sam Walton, you know, Sam, his manager told him, when he's working at JCPenney, he's like, Sam, you got to find a different career. You're not cut out for retail. Like, think about how ridiculous that is, right? He just didn't know what he was, what he was going to do. And uh, it's no different. Uh, I'm sure you feel the reason I bring this is because I'm sure you've had this own feeling in your life, right? So I'm going to fast forward. This is now less at 33. Remember, he wanted to be an entrepreneur since he's 16. He doesn't do it till he's about 33. He says, I was now 33 years old and still wanting to go into business of my own. Money was the main thing holding me up. Uh, so his brother-in-law winds up making some money at, uh, in like the timber industry, right? So it says, my brother-in-law told me to find a business and he would help me finance it. That was all I needed. And I started to look seriously as I knew the time was running out. I believed if you didn't get started in business at a fairly young age, you would get into a rut and never make the big decision to jump. There was a tire business for sale in Prineville. So this is going to be the very first Les Schwab tire company right here. Um, he winds up getting a loan. Let's see. The price of the shop was $11,000 plus inventory. Let's call it 15 grand, okay? Um, I've seen other people analyze this and they said he, he did it for 3,500. That's not accurate. I mean, in the book it says the t price of the shop was $11,000. So it says, um, I thought the tire business had a future. Remember, he doesn't know anything about the business though. But again, this is why I go back to like having a belief. You can't just have a false belief. I don't mean be cocky or be confident and not do the work to like necessary to justify that. But what he did, having a career now, started working essentially full-time since he was 15 years old. Now he's 33, okay? So it's 18 years. Like, he knew he could learn. Like, he didn't know anything about the newspaper delivery business. Learned that. Didn't know anything about working. And then he winds up working inside the, uh, for the actual newspapers. Didn't know anything about it. Did well at that. So I was like, I don't know anything about the tire business, but I'll figure it out. So he says, uh, I thought the tire business had a future. I remember telling my wife I thought I was a salesman. Oh, that's an understatement. A pretty good one. Yeah, that's an understatement. And maybe that ability could be used in the tire business. It was a hard, knuckle-busting, dirty work. I got $11,000 from my brother-in-law, sold my home, and borrowed on my life insurance. 
Altogether, I raised $3,500. So what's that? Just under 15, just shy of $15,000. Okay. Now, this is, he talks about his first day in business. This, this is the first sentence on the first day. I had never fixed a flat tire in my life. He had no experience with tires whatsoever. Okay. But, but from a very early age, he thought a lot about business because I told you, he constantly analyzed. He's like, why are they making the decision they make? That's so, so weird. You can do this too. Go patronize a store or a service. You're like, this is really sloppy. This is not, I would do it differently. I'm sure you've had these ideas. All of us have had these ideas. This, why are you doing this? This is very bizarre. Les has, is full of ideas like this. So he says, one of this is that if he ever went into business, he was going to share the profits. I remember telling my wife many times that if I ever got a chance to go into business, I had some ideas about sharing with people and about sponsoring people in the business. There are a lot of people who could run a business, but would never uh, get a chance due to mostly the lack of startup money. I was going to furnish the money and in some way share with them the promotion of our business. So what's unique about the, the structure, the incentive structure, and I would say the organizational structure of Les Schwab is each individual store is its own entity, right? And the employees that are in, that are working that store have partnership agreements. So they don't own stock, but they own access to the profits, okay? Um, so he says, and that's what he means. Like they may never be able to run a business on themselves, but if they look at their individual store as a small business and they own 50% of it, and maybe there's, you know, at, at start, there's one guy running the store, you know? Um, and then, you know, you might have 12 or 13 people in the store over time as it grows. So the first month we did $2,800 in sales. Uh, Feb that's January. February was even less in sales. But in March, I got, I started going, and by June and July, I was doing ten thousand dollars more per month in sales. At the end, now think about this contrast, right? At the end of the year, I had one hundred fifty thousand dollars in sales. The man I bought, I bought out, meaning the the previous year, they did thirty two thousand in sales. The note of myself is being good at sales is like being a magician. Because Les would go out and he'd, he wouldn't sit down and wait for people to come to his store. He'd go out and sell tires. That's what he did all the time. He was a fanatic, to use that word again. Um, okay, so now he's going to get into, like, he, so Munger talked about, like, he less rode the wave of the Japanese tire importing, right? And why did Japanese... Why the Japanese have an opening to, to, to make so much money in the American market? You had a bunch of huge American rubber companies. And you're going to see, like, because they, they treated their dealers and the people buying from them terribly. So it says, um, the pricing policies of the major rubber companies uh, to their dealers was most unfair. Uh, they were all the same, all five of the American rubber companies. So he's saying there's essentially like a cartel. There's collusion. There's price fixing here, right? Uh, this was called meeting a competitive situation. That's is the term that, that, that the companies told their dealers, right? What, and so Les is going to translate this for us into English. I called it milking the dealer of his profit. Um, and so he's going to continue talking about like that, you know, they're milking the people who are supposed to be help, helping. It's the opposite theory that Les has on business. You should be helping the people that can make you, because helping the people make you more successful. You're doing the opposite. So he calls this earning your failure. That's a really interesting idea. It's like they earn their failure. Um, I had to contend with this until I made connections with Toyo Tire Company from Japan. I say, thank God for the foreign tire supply. It helped the independent tire dealer. I had a theory that went like this. Never take advantage of a customer. Never take advantage of an employee. 
but take all the advantage you possibly could of a rubber company because they were not being fair and honest. So he's giving it back exactly. He, he's not just gonna be like, okay, you're going to take advantage. Uh, you'll take all my profit and I'll go to business. He's like, no, I'm going to fight you back. You want to be unfair with me? I'm going to be unfair with you. Less a very hard dude, um, as you could imagine. He says, today in 1985, I don't feel the same way towards rubber companies as I did 25 or 30 years ago. They are much better people today. Today, I, and so he's saying, like, this is the theory. This is the theory I had when I was in the beginning. I don't obviously hold that theory now. So he's talking about growth he had. Um, today, I don't want my company to take advantage of anyone, even the rubber companies. But I certainly won't apologize for anything I did in order to survive 25 or 30 years ago. I am proud that I had the guts to fight hard enough to survive this period. I feel strongly that the rubber companies were very unfair to their dealers during the early years of my tire business, and they could be unfair because they had a cartel. The five, and now what do you think is going to happen? Over and over again, we, we see examples of this. When you take your eye off of, and you stop having a maniacal focus on the customer, and you start wanting to make more money for yourself or be selfish or just think, hey, I, I, I've cornered this market too bad, they have to deal with it, what's going to happen? I, the five major American rubber companies have received their just awards, as two of them have dropped truck tires entirely, and the other three aren't doing very well with truck tire sales. It serves them right. They have earned their failure. Um, so he's got, is this his second store? I think he's about to open his second store. But um, this is something that Les was very adamant about from the very beginning. And he says, I had made my mind up to do it very differently. This just comes from his, his analysis of, uh, of like studying businesses, seeing where they, they make mistakes, and then collecting more information anybody else. Oh, I never finished my, 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 um, my point on Bill Gurley. There's a book out there I'm going to eventually read on the founding of Benchmark. And the original founders, like the summary of the book says that um, they eventually go out and hire people that were very strong in areas they were weak. And I don't remember, like I know Gurley was an, an analyst and that he was taking his own advice and collecting more information, being the most knowledgeable person than anybody else was. And so they saw that he was strong where they were weak, so they brought him into the company. That advice that he's giving us in that talk made Bill Gurley a billionaire. He got in, into Benchmark. Benchmark w succeeded, and he's a partner now. And he, that's, that's how much studying and learning the craft and taking what you're doing during the day seriously like that's what it could lead to. That's a, that's a cra pretty crazy outcome. So anyways, uh, back to Les. My theory in the small store was that all other large tire dealers had... Oh, so this is interesting. This is a weird thing. So <laughs> they're selling truck tires. Remember, there's a lot of like lumber and ranch and like think of like, you know, very rural production here. And truck tires are extremely expensive. Um, so the other businesses would go out and... They have like these large, they, they bring the service to you, right? So he says, um, and he's like, well, I'm, I'm going to do the opposite. They're going to come to me. So my theory in sm the small store was that all other large truck dealers, large tire dealers had big service trucks running all over the country. They called on mills, commercial accounts, garages, and service stations. But I had made up my mind to do it differently. I would advertise to the ranchers and other people telling them to buy direct from me. The other tire de dealers had 6,000 plus invested in service trucks. So one truck would cost six grand, right, for them. I put in a whole store for 10 grand, and we were there six days a week. They only used, they only called once a week, meaning like you could only visit uh, using the trucks one customer once a week. Uh, he's got people coming to him. It worked. People did come directly to my store, and business was picking up constantly. And he did it 
for a, a fraction of the cost. Like how many trucks, how, like $6,000 a pop, you have a bunch of trucks, you're spending way less than he'd spent on one store. Um, this is when he started profit sharing, and then this is a very smart move he did on his part. He didn't ever think that Les Schwab would be as big as it got because he treated everything as an experiment, right? So he says, a big day in my business career was on January 1st, 1954. Uh, this was the start of the profit sharing program that we still use today. We still share 50% of our profits, but we share it with all employees in the store. Uh, so he's sharing it with this guy, Frank, who's going to be his managing of his first store so he can open a second store. He says, I also told Frank that if this store was successful, I planned to build more. If this store failed, I would just go back to Prineville and just run one store. There wouldn't be a chain of Les Schwab tire centers that we have today if I hadn't been successful in Redmond. Okay, so his first two stores, to get started, he was like a, he signed like a dealer contract. This is how he knows the dealers were, were very unfair. Uh, and it was this, it's called OK Tires. And he was determined to be independent. And he was, he was honest almost to his fault. So he starts meeting with the, the person, like the person that, I guess you call it, someone's like a franchise, I guess is how I would des- describe this. But he says, I was going to open my, in, my own uh, independent tire store. And then the person that he has a contract with, he said, he said I couldn't do that. And my reply was, let's not argue. I just want to be open about it. Uh, now I had a fight with OK Tire Stores. They were on my back, but we charged ahead. And he says, I did really have a fight with OK. They were threatening to take all my equipment away from me and cancel me out as an OK Rubber franchise member. I lost my temper and told them hereafter I didn't want any more harassment from them. If they had anything more to say, say it in court. I walked the floor nights. He, he uses this term over and over again, walking the floor at night. Uh, because if they took my equipment, it would have bankrupted me. I was bluffing, but I was determined. Uh, he says, as I think back, I think the reason they didn't take it to court was due to the fact that they, he's, this comes up with a really good insight here. Due to the fact that if they lost, it would have messed up the fran- their other franchises nationwide. So he only had, you're talking in the 1950s, uh, the fee was like $12 per year, and they had like thousands of these everywhere. So yeah, they may uh, let less like slide out of a contract he shouldn't have been uh, he shouldn't have gotten out of, but it cost him $24 for the year at a, at a risk of avoiding uh, their franchise contract with thousands of others. Uh, so he says, every time they try to, and this is hilarious. So then they try to cancel me. He says, every time they try to cancel me, I would send them a registered letter telling them I wouldn't accept the cancellation. It's like, no, Oh, you want to, it's like somebody breaking up with you. No, I don't think so. We're not going to break up. Um, uh, this is a reminder that the early days of his company were full of struggle and that he had, you know, modest initial goals. Uh, the pressure on me was tremendous. My largest account was behind on payments and it worried me to no end. So he'd extend credit to his customers. My net worth was about the same as what they owed me. If they had gone broke at that time, uh, they would have taken me down with them. And the Les Schwab story would have ended right there. Um, I told Dorothy, this is his wife, I was gelling an idea for the future. Maybe build six or seven or eight stores someday. I think today they have like 600 or something like that. I was already visualizing ahead, but we certainly went past the six, seven, or eight numbers. Uh, Skipping ahead a little bit, we're going to see less, like many of the entrepreneurs that we study, are masters at capping their downside and then leaving uh, their upside uncapped. And then also, he, he has, again, no education, but a lot of street smarts and a lot of people, good with people. And he just instinctively knew, hey, I don't want to build a business on someone else's property. 
So he says, I had an escape clause in the contract that it, he's talking about uh, expanding now. Now he's up to a seventh store and uh, expanding like larger buildings, larger land. He says, I had an escape clause in the contract that I could turn it back to him and not have to pay it off. He wanted to lease it to me, but I'd already seen the wisdom of owning property and I wanted a contract so that I could own it someday if I made it. So he has this, this standard operating procedure where he'd do a 5-5 and he would do a five-year lease um, with a five-year option to buy. Um, and so now, actually, I was just reading, um, there's actually a piece of news on Les Schwab company recently where um, it, was, it was a private company. I'll talk to you more about that. And they might put it themselves up for sale. Um, Les is dead. His, his kids are dead, unfortunately. So this is different, multiple generations now. And um, they're going to sell it. They think they'll get about $3 billion for the company. And they own a, a big chunk of that value is they own a lot of real estate. And it comes to what Les is doing here back in the 1950s. Um, and then this idea about don't build on someone else's property. You, what is it like the, the modern day equivalent? It's people that build uh, businesses on top of like Facebook, Google, uh, YouTube. I just saw somebody, they were like, they built a business on YouTube. They hired a bunch of people. And then I guess uh, YouTube either changed the algorithm or just decided, hey, you can't make money, like demonetize them. And they went to Twitter and understandably, listen, this is heartbreaking to me. Like somebody's going to lose their business right around the holidays, whatever the case is. It's just like rule number one. Don't build a business on someone else's property. Uh, okay, here we go. I love this part. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So, remember, at the beginning, he talks about how these, these, these tire companies would just screw their dealers. So, he has an agreement about like a, some, like a 5% um, stipulation in a contract, which is essentially his profit margin at the time when he was just starting out. And they agreed to, to keep it in, even though they were going to take it out from other tire dealers. And then they renege, like a few months later, they renege on that agreement. And so this is Les's response. He says, I called the vice president at night and got him out of bed. He later told my wife that I called him at 2.30 in the morning. It was not quite that late, but I was mad. I got the 5% back. Um, and so he, the takeaway from this experience he's having, he says, it's hard to comprehend today why big companies treat their dealers and employees the way they do. And so... In, in the sense, less is their customer. And it's the lesson here is maintain a maniacal focus on the customer. And just if you do that, we say, and the, the note I left myself is like, why is this so hard? Why do so many people spread across all con different countries, different time periods, eventually lose sight of who got them there to begin with? What got them there was a maniacal focus on the customer. And the, and the businesses that succeed over a long period of time never lose that focus. This is the company's called General Tire. I think they go out of business, actually. Um, or at least they go to the business they were in at that, that point. It's like, it's not, it's not a surprise. Less is like, doesn't, he's just very, like has a, again, a lot of common sense. It is hard to comprehend today why big companies treat their dealers and employees the way they do. Cause we, he knows long-term that when you, when you treat people like that, like they're going to go elsewhere. They have other options. It only works if you have like a, a monopoly. And even then you really want to be that, uh, um, that kind of person. Uh, here's an example of his fanaticism. I, it's not unusual for me to drive 600 miles or more in one day and make many stops. So he'd be out in the field constantly, um, constantly visiting the stores, constantly checking up to make sure that they're actually following through on the ideas and the theories and the way he wanted the businesses run. Um, he's also studied people like from other businesses and, and adapted. Essentially, in this section, he's learning from other, from the advertising um practices of other people. 
Uh, he's studying Lucky Strike cigarettes. So he says, Lucky Strike cigarettes were tremendously heavy advertisers. This is, he was advertising on the radio at the time. LSMFT was their slogan. I don't know how that even worked. It, and it says, it was on their cigarette pack, and they hammered it constantly. LSMFT, Lucky Strikes means fine tobacco. So it's an acronym. So he's watching this. And he's like, wait a minute. And he's like, I told Dorothy, this is his wife again. Look, LSMT, MFT. That means Les Schwab means fine tires. I started to use it immediately, and it was very effective. Um, there's this huge section I'm going to skip, but I want to tell you the, um, the, the key takeaway here. Um, he's one of the first company. I think they still do this to this day. Uh, he decides that even if you're not his customer, he'll fix your flat tire for free. And he starts putting that in his advertising. And over time, this tactic grew his business. So he'd lose a little bit on the front end, you know, because he's dedicating maybe 25 minutes, whatever, however long it take, takes to fix the flat. But when it was time for new tires, they'd go back to the business that helped them. And that's just, again, fundamental aspect of, of human nature. Um, and he, he started fixing flats just because he thought it was the right thing to do. And then eventually he's like, oh, wow, this is helping. He discovered this by accident. Because they come in and be like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, six months ago or whatever, you fixed my flat tire. Now I need two rear tires. I decided to buy it from you. Um, so any way you can, you can adopt, uh, adapt that to your own life, you might find a way that if you do something for somebody, when the time comes, they, can, they reciprocate. It's the reciprocal tendency, I think, is, is the, the psychological term. Um, I can, there's a lot in this book where once you read... Once you, like, I feel I've read enough about Charlie Munger and then read also the people he admires, and you start to see, like, what he admires in other people is the stuff he wants to see in himself and probably does see in himself. And uh, one of his most famous ideas is the invert always invert. Like, you can solve a lot of problems if you work backwards. Uh, this is less saying my, my thinking was to reverse it. Um, and it says, most tire businesses had a small showroom, and all the tires were hidden in the warehouse. My thinking was to reverse this, to make the showroom the warehouse. It would impress people, but I had to wait until I can get the right buildings to work out of. I did the best with what I had, and even then, I had more tires displayed than any other tire dealer in the area. People were impressed. And now this is another example of how you can be great at one business, and that doesn't equal that you're going to be great at any business. Right. And a lot of people think this. That's why you have like this phenomenal serial entrepreneurs. They have a great idea. They sell the company and then they try. And sometimes they're successful in the second or third time. But in most cases, they gave away their best idea. And now you're just working on your second or third best idea. It's very bizarre. Um, so he's, he wants to start a ranch. And ranch is supposed to be able It's a business. That, like it's supposed to sustain itself. He says, I've often said I think I'm one of the very best tire dealers in America. But without a doubt, I'm pro I probably am about the worst cattle rancher in America. Attempting to be a cattle rancher has cost me millions of dollars. I would undoubtedly be three, four, or five million dollars richer if I had never attempted to be a rancher. But then you also see his, his idea where he repeats all over and over again. But I don't really regret it as you only go through life once and I would have hated to go through life without my cattle ranch experience. He says that over and over again. You only go through life once. You only go through life once. Why aren't you taking, like, why aren't you taking the risks that you want to take? Um, kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, right? Um, this is another example of his fanaticism. He was obsessed with keeping everything clean, uh, to the point that he insisted that, remember, he said that I'm going to, I'm going to do the opposite of what people do. I'm going to have this huge tire showroom and people are going to be really impressed. They're going to see how much selection I have. It's going to look like I have more tires than any, all my competitors. <laughs> he made sure that the tires on display were cleaned every day. 
So he says a super, he calls it the supermarket tire store. A supermarket tire store has tires displayed, a clean showroom, tires waxed, and, a, and, a, and an appealing appearance. I sincerely hope I've made myself very clear. And this is also an insight in his personality. So he talks about you have to, um, uh, the tires are cleaned daily with a dust cloth, and they're cleaned so nicely because of the clean lacquer. And he gives instructions. Uh, one, I want to tell you where he's writing this. It, he's had in the book, he reprints a bunch of, he calls them company bulletins. Think of them like internal co- company communications, like a memo. And I, I would I would pay for a book that that just had every single memory ever written. I think that'd be fascinating. But he just he shares a bunch of them. And at the, the end of this memo, you see an insight into his personality. I, this is this entire memo about keeping your store clean. I sincerely hope I, I have made myself very clear. I love you, but I love a supermarket tire store even more. <laughs> this guy, man, his personality like jumps off of uh, the page for real. So another example of his uh, bull in his bulletin is how to get the incentives right. Um, and so this was people he wanted a he wanted people. Like if he's investing in leadership, they have to then in turn invest in their people, right? So he says, to all stores, if a bright, young, ambitious person joins our company and wants to make our company his career, does he do it because he likes you? Do you think that this man is going to work 10 hours per day just to help you build your stores? He's picking up that we're all self-interested. It's in our nature, right? So he says, again, appeal to interest. Don't say, hey, buy my product because it's better for me. Talk to your customer about what, what's the difference it makes in, in their lives, right? So he's doing this on a, in an internal management perspective. Uh, do you think this man is going to work uh, work for low pay year after year just so you can build your profit share contract into a nice fat at nest egg? No, I don't think so. He wants to see results, just like you did when you started up the ladder. This man didn't join the company because of, of the future of the store manager, or for that matter, for the future of Les Schwab personally. This man joined the company because of his future with the Les Schwab Tire Centers, not you personally. Um, so he talks about don't block these people, hire them. He wanted them to um, he wanted them to hire assistant managers, and they would re- they would uh, resist because it would take away some of their money. So he says, and not realizing that they'd make more money in the long term because the assistant manager would make the overall business, which they have a percentage of, more successful. So he says, and this program, in spite of this bulletin and my urging, never did work until we made a change. Since our managers didn't volunteer, I made a rule. The manager's contract was going to be changed to 45%. If he didn't have an assistant manager, the company got 55%. So he's like, you don't want to give up an extra few points? Fine, the company will take it. Do you know something? We never had a problem after that in having an assistant manager for each store. Um, on the next page, he's reminding us the, the importance of being focused. And I think this is more important today than it was in, in Les Schwab's day because there's just way more things to, to, to steal away our focus. And then we have entire companies with some of the smartest people in the world figuring out how to steal away more of our time. Um, so I think, again, Les, a bunch of people that we studied all talk about you have, to, you have to have dominion and control over your focus because if you're giving it away, it's the most powerful thing you have and the thing that will make your business or your life more successful on your personal level, monetarily, any, any, uh, literally anything that you want to improve, the way to improve it is to focus on it. Um, all right. So he says, we must constantly remind ourselves as to just why we are successful and we must do something and we must do and what we must do to, to continue to be successful. Because if we become complacent brother, it's all over with. That's another thing. That's hilarious. He, he calls the reader brother over and over again, brother. 
It's like Hulk Hogan over here. Um, oh, so here we go. This is the um, now. He, see, there's no really structure to the book, right? Which I, which it was really enjoyable. I really <laughs> liked it. But now, in the middle of building, he's talking about how he builds his business. He flashbacks to building his first business, which is like the newspaper delivery business, right? And this reminded me, uh, the this moment that I'm about to describe to you is if you experience this, this is the day you become an entrepreneur. Um, this is the same thing last week. I covered Ingvar Kamprad. Did you know Ikea was founded when he was 17 years old? He worked on it till he's 91, owned 100% of the company, died with a net worth somewhere around $58 billion, even though he had a weird, weird ownership structure later on, but um, for like tax and estate purposes. Um, he had a very same experience when I, I forgot what he was selling now. I think it was fountain pens. Um, but anyways, he made like a 300% return. He's like, and he was like, young, young, maybe under 10. He's like, oh, wait a minute. I worked all week. I got whatever, a dollar, whatever that was. And then I just did this business. And in one transaction, I made five. So we're going to see the same thing, uh, similar thing happening here in the early days of Les Schwab's life. So he says, I guess as I think back, I've always been interested in business. Stores and the people working in stores interested me. That probably is the reason I was successful with my newspaper routes. The newspapers in the 1930 period were very competitive. And if you had ability, you could make good money. Remember, he made more than his high school principal. There was about 25% unemployment during the Depression period. My folks died when I was 15, but I never took a dime of welfare money. I could always find more work than I could do. I think one thing that convinced me to be a salesman and a businessman was a job I had one su summer along with my newspaper route. So he worked in a restaurant. He was a dishwasher. I got $1.50 per week plus dinner. But it was hard work with the paper route early in the morning, school all day, and working until 8.30 at night. So I quit the restaurant and started working harder on my newspaper route. We got 50 cents for each new subscription we sold. I could make more in a few hours selling newspaper subscriptions than I could all week at the restaurant. That convinced me that selling in business would be my career. So that's what I mean. That's the moment when a... Um, an entrepreneur is born. Um, this is the, we now are flashing forward back into his life and he's building his business. And this is where he just gets tired of the BS and he decides I'm going independent. So it says, I was so disgusted with the tire suppliers that I was willing to do almost anything to help my company survive. About 1966 or thereabouts, I made a big decision. I decided to take down all the rubber company signs to go straight independent to buy tires like Safeway buys groceries. This is important. So he took, he calls it what, the, the concept that he introduced to the tire industry, the supermarket of tires. And this is also why, you know, the company's called Les Schwab Tires. They don't manufacture their own tires. They buy the best from other people and sell them. But he's not tied to one individual. Like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of contracts where it's like, okay, I'm a Bridgestone dealer. Or I'm a Firestone dealer. Or I'm a Michelin dealer. Les is like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be in control here. Not you. Uh, so he says, uh, I decided to buy tires like Safeway buys groceries. I'd buy the best possible tire, good quality, and the lowest possible price. This was a major move at the time. No one had really tried it. All right, so he, he's continuing to grow. Skipping ahead again, he, um, he, he designed his company with not a lot of policies, right? He had systems, which is what Munger would say. But he didn't have a lot of control. So he hires, a, the company's growing like crazy. So he hires a controller and the controller quits. He's like, this is ridiculous. You don't have enough like controls in place. You can't run a business like that. And so why would it work? Like, how did this, this is possible, right? He's got a bunch of stores. He can't be in the stores all day. But he has an incentive structure that's very smart. 
Um, so he talks about, listen, yeah, there's a con, you're going to have a contract and your money's going to go into like, it's like a lot of the profit sharing would go into like a retirement plan, but you would forfeit that money if you were ever caught being dishonest. And in a sense, like stealing from the company, which a lot of, you know, people would do in other companies that didn't really happen here because let's say, are you going to steal $400 from the cash register? If you have $20,000 bank that you're going to forfeit and you're, that says if you, if you're caught stealing, you're going to forfeit that. Well, some people still will, of course, but a, a lot more like, oh, that's, that's a bad deal. So he says, now, and this, this is why he says, this is less describing why he can run a company with so, with so many stores, but so few controls. So he says, now that we share with all people, remember there's ownership involved. Uh, if any one employee sees another employee steal anything, they are a weak kitten if they don't report it. Why? Because this man is stealing from them, from his children. If he won't fight for his children, he can't be very much. For a company as large as ours is today, we have very little dishonesty. And again, that's just less understanding the way humans think. Okay. Oh, this is... Okay, so there's going to be some heartbreaks here. Um, he has two children. Um, both of them he wants... He, he, he wants... Like the family business to continue. He wanted this business to continue for hundreds of years within the family. We obviously now know that that's probably not going to happen now, but, uh, both his, his son and his daughter, um, work in the, in the, in the business. Okay. And this, the, the left myself is something I'm talking to myself here, uh, is be kinder because we are all temporary and it just, it just, it just, you're going to regret now, there's some people that are going to do you wrong. Even in that situation, um, like as I get older, I'm just like, you know what? Just it's not worth it. Just remove this person for your life, but don't you know fight or it's just there's other ways to, to direct that attention. So he was pretty hard on his son, and you're going to see why this is going to be a big regret here. He says, "This is his son. He stopped by the house one night, really broken down. Maybe I was too rough on him, but the only thing I could tell him was, damn it, I told you, show." told you so. I wonder now if maybe I was too harsh on him. He was defeated, bankrupt, broke, and really down. So his son is in a really dark, dark place in his life. And, you know, that's, life is hard enough to get through without having, you know, somebody you really love, like your father or or maybe a close friend be extremely, you know, not helpful in that situation. His son knows he made a mistake. So a short time after, this is what happens. It was 2 a.m. October 26, 1971, when the doorbell rang. Policemen were at the door. They came in and told me Harlan, that's a son, was dead. He had run into the back of a log truck. I sometimes have thought he might have done this on purpose, as he was very, very depressed. He was 31. Harlan left his wife, Jean, daughter Diana, 10 years old, and son Alan, 8 years old. And so I'm sure the night he was harsh with his son, like, I'm sure he didn't think, like, you know, maybe we're going to, maybe I'll be mean. Maybe we'll make up whatever the case was. I'm sure he didn't think his son was going to die at 31 years old. And I think the way Les wrote about this is like, you know, if he had known that he would have did things differently. And so I think like just in general, be kinder as much as we can. It's, it's probably good life advice. Okay. Now I want to tell you about an experience that he's going to have, that he's going to go through. Um, that a lot of entrepreneurs deal with, and it's falling out with partners over money. 
Uh, sometimes it's over, not just over money, but the falling out of partners is what happens a lot. Um, so he started the company by himself. Over time, it got so complex that key employees were given like large, decent percentages of the company to help out because he's like, I can't do this all alone. And uh, so he says, Norm Nelson and Don Miller were both making tons of money. But as always, I never paid too much salary. The salary was enough to live on and the rest stayed in the company to be used for expansion. So what happened is they wanted, um, they wanted to, to, to take their money out. Les wanted to leave it in to expand and, and continue to grow the company. It's something he did the entire time he's running the company. I soon found out that I'd run into a buzzsaw as both Norm and Don teamed up against me. This is something I could never, ever figure out. So he goes, I think this hurt him a great deal because he talks about it a lot in the book, but this one section is like really, really long. He doesn't write long chapters. So I'm just going to hit like the highlights here. And he says what, like, what he's learning from the situation. Money has funny effects on different people, especially the kind of money these men were now making. So he's fighting about this for like a long time, months and months and months. Um, so he says, I went home and Dorothy and I talked about nothing else that night. At breakfast, Dorothy suggested, why don't you buy them both out? You'll get by some way. Something hit me. I hit the table, dishes fell off, and I said, that's the best damn idea we've had in the six months we've been talking about it. So he goes, and he says, okay, the contract says at any given time, if I give you 30 days notice, I can buy you out. So I'm not going to argue with you. I'm still the one who's going to run the company. I'll figure out how to do it myself. He says, Don, you wanted a swimming pool? Now you can have it. You'll get your $225,000. Norm, you wanted money? Now you're going to get your money. You'll get around $300,000. Okay? Uh, I'm skipping large parts of this. He says, it turned out to be one of the, uh, by far one of the best things that could have happened to the company. Greed was entering into the company and greed destroys. Their interest today would be worth around $12 million each. So again, Les took an extremely, extremely long-term view in his company. He optimized for the long-term, as anybody that, that is good at running companies does, to optimize for the long-term. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delay my um, compensation or my consumption now because I'll make more money in the future, right? This is just basic tenets of business, right? At the time he's writing these words, the company was doing $10 million in sales. Or excuse me, I'm wrong. The company was doing $10 million. This is in the 1960s when they have this falling out, right? So they're fighting over a couple hundred grand, right? They couldn't see the long-term vision like, like uh, less good. So the company's doing $10 million in sales at that time. In 1985, so let's, let's call it almost 20 years later, they were doing $180 million in sales. That's the time he's writing the book. Writing the book. Now, fast forward again. In 2008, 1.8 billion. Could you imagine what that 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 percentage of Les Schwab tires would have been if they would have kept it? They didn't. They got bought out for 200 and 300 grand. If they waited 20 years, that 200 300 grand is 12 million dollars. Who knows what it would have been if they they waited even longer? That's that's crazy. So uh, there's a lot more uh, to that story, but I'm going to skip over it. He's got a motto. Uh, unselfish for good reasons. Unselfish for good reasons has been a slogan of mine for nearly 34 years I've been in business. I never could understand why more business people don't share with their employees. So there's a lot of sentences in, in this book that start like that. I could never understand why more business people don't do X. Uh, so he says, I don't understand why they, can, they don't share more with their employees. What nicer thing can you do with their profits? You can't take it with you. And then he talks about like he's got strong... Um, 
strong points of view and strong criticisms for how a lot of American businesses were being run at the time. Have you ever, have you ever been to or read about a ribbon cutting ceremony by a wealthy man whereby he had built a wing on a hospital, built a museum or a church or something for the community? Oftentimes his own employees were in the crowd and some of them couldn't even afford to buy new shoes for their kids. I believe in sharing with those who help me and thinking about uns and thinking about unselfish for good reasons. Um, Oh, so now we're going to see more of his, his, remember I told you his viewpoint was that the people that were doing the actual work were way more, he, he did, he thought very much in the opposite manner as most com people running companies did, especially at this time, this, this belief is probably still true. He's like, no, 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 you give all the bonus money to the people in the office. The people in the office are just telling us how the people in the front lines did. And they're doing it after the people, after the fact. He's like, that's nice. People in the office, you're going to tell me next month with the guys and the, the girls working in the stores did last month. Like those are the most important people. And so this advice is something I talk about a lot where if you're in the position where you're working for somebody else right now, if in your, in your long-term interest, it's, it's better if you stay closer to the money. If the position you're working in is close to how the company makes money, the further you get away from the money, the easier it is for management in a downturn to say, oh, we don't need that department, close it down. And you see this over and over and over again. So he says, we have had over the years, some people in the office that sometimes think they're more important than the stores. The office serves only one purpose, that is to serve the stores. So Sam Walton, his autobiography says, listen, you are either serving the customers or you're serving the people that serve the customers. If you're not doing one of those two things, you're, you will not be employed by me. Henry Ford thought, start, thought similar things too. He says, our store managers make more money than our office people. Some of our office people, especially some people with MBA degrees or CPA certificates, sometimes wonder about this. But I've warned them, don't bitch to me because don't bitch to me because that is the way I want it. If you want to go out, start at the bottom changing tires and work into a manager job, then hop right to it. If it weren't for those men in those stores working their butts off in all kinds of weather, weather, missing meals, god awful hours, etc., you wouldn't even have a job. He's very adamant. And I think there's a lot of this has to tie with like his roots, like growing up the way he did, realizing like how where the value is actually created in other people's lives. It's not with the people sitting in the office. Doesn't mean they don't like they they can't add valuable um, contributions to a company, but don't tr don't don't get it twisted. Why that company is actually successful? Something less. He, he that's just one quote. He brings this up a lot and a lot. Um, okay, here's a story. Uh, okay, so this is him again analyzing other businesses. In this in this case, it's a competitor, right? And so his his main takeaway is life is hard for people who think they can take a shortcut. So there's this this um this new upstart in the tire business in Oregon that's going to go and um and compete with him. They might might have actually been in in existence before he was, but they were expanding more rapidly than he was. So he said, and the guy the guy running is called uh, Neil, and it's the son of the founder actually. Uh, it says if Neil, the, so th this business was indeed started before Les Schwab, but it didn't expand rapidly until the son takes over, right? And now we're going to see the difference between a founder and a CEO. If Neil, and he talks about this a lot, he talks over and over again that he's worried about the future of his company because he, he'll say, you know, company X, their founder ran, did a fantastic job. The founder dies. Look at the company X now. Company Y, founder did a fantastic job. Look at the company now. Over and over again. So Lester's just obsessed with this. Uh, if Neil made a major mistake, and he must have because he went bankrupt, it was in moving too fast. But he had me concerned for quite a period of time. The Nelson Tire Warehouses were springing up all over Oregon. I think they got up to 24 stores. They were heavy on advertising. 
They always advertised they had the lowest prices in town. Now, Les is going to say this is a stupid idea. I personally think it's very foolish and poor business to say we have the lowest prices in town. He says that because, first of all, prices change all the time. And so sometimes he'd have customers come into his store and be like, I'm comparing your prices to this ad I saw that says they have the lowest prices in town. And I discovered, oh, my God, they don't have the lowest prices in town. So his, that customer's first impression of the business was they're freaking lying to me. What? They're not going to go back to your store. You just waste all your advertising money. Why'd you do that? Um, so he says, uh, I said, so he, he didn't like the way they ran their ads, but he also said they were very smart cost-wise, right? So they thought, okay, I'm going to have an advantage by having a lower cost, but they, they cut costs in the wrong area. They cut costs in, in the, the, what they paid their employees. Less is making his employees rich. Right over. The flaw here was that they didn't get with their low, play, low pay near the quality of employees we had. And so the problem was less, less almost followed them and, and would have led to his demise. He says, after thinking about this for a year or so, wondering if I shouldn't cut wages and benefits, I finally made the decision. That decision was if I couldn't be proud of my company, if I couldn't pay good wages, if I couldn't have good benefits, if I couldn't have the best employees, then why would I even want to stay in business? I already had all the money I wanted personally. So we did nothing and we won. That's, that takes a lot of restraint, understanding that, hey, this person looks like they're succeeding from the outside, but I can identify flaws that over the long term will take care of themselves. So we did nothing and we won. The customer liked us best. Life is hard for the man who thinks he can take a shortcut. So he's talking, it's like, I'm going to grow methodically, slowly over a long period of time. This new guy's going to come in, he's going to outgrow me, everybody's going to give him adulation and think he's fantastic. And then guess what? Who's going to be around a decade from now? I will. He's not. Um, so he talks, talk, he, he, had, he was tempted to go public at one point. So, um, this is a quote from an art, from an interview I saw right before he died in like 2004. He says, the company isn't for sale. All stock will remain in the family. Uh, he also turned down acquisition offer offers from Warren Buffett. And then the, um, the owner of Michelin tire, uh, actually the, the owner of Michelin tire became a billionaire off of this. And, uh, he wrote a book that I just, um, that I just downloaded. So he's going to wind up being a uh, future founders episode. Anyways, this is, um, this is Les talking about how he resisted that. He says, I'm so glad I resisted the urge to have our stock on the market. I don't want a few investors around the country club asking about our business and questioning some of our decisions. You can, you can probably pick up from now that he's a control freak <laughs> um, in the sense that like he wants his business run the way he wants his business run. Uh, and he says, they might even ask, how come some of those store managers, oh, and then you're going to see his personality here too. He says, how come some of the store managers make so much money? Why, they make twice as much as I do, and I have a college degree. I'd probably lose a customer, as my answer would be, he is worth twice as much as you, and he has a degree too. He learned how to be a businessman. I'll probably add, he also learned how to work, something you never did learn. Um, he, and then he talks about, like, he still goes on about, you know, I want control. It, you know, I can make a, he's talking, I can make a ton of money, but what am I going to do with the money? Um, this is interesting because while I was researching or reading about Jim, James Senegal, um, Sam Walton, let me see if I still have that quote, actually, so I don't mess it up. Um, Sam Walton attempted to buy Costco uh, in the early days of Costco. And he came a couple times, he spent visiting, and, and James is like, no, I don't want to do it, you know, whatever. And Sam's like, listen, I'm interested in buying a company, but I'm, I'm never going to do anything hostile to you. So he met with them, he said no, Sam calls him again, right? And so... Uh, 
Walton phoned again, wanting to know if Costco leaders had warmed up to his idea. Senegal's reply, Sam, we have no interest. We're like you. We're entrepreneurs. We want to build a company that will be here 50 years from now. Walton's reply was, I understand. You understand? He's the same kind of person. He's like, I don't want to sell Walmart either. So I completely understand what you're saying here. So this is, uh, Les has that thought. He's like, I don't, I'm not doing this for the short term. He says, I could come out with an astronomical bundle of money if I sold the company, but what would I do with it? What good is money beyond a certain point? He's saying, he's saying I'm already stupid rich. I think the biggest misconception the public has about a successful businessman is he is working for more money. You won't find many truly successful ones that are greedy. Success in my mind comes from having a successful business, one that is a good place to work, one that offers opportunities for people, and one you could be proud to own. Success in life is being a good husband, a good father, and you end up being a second father to hundreds of other young men and women as a, as a business owner. Just last night, I attended the wedding of a young man from our office, and this young man told me that the two men, uh, that two men had influenced his life, his father and me. That's worth more than money. So I have a lot of thoughts about this. One, I think if I analyze the, the products I love and the companies I truly love, their founders had the same view that, that Sam had, that Les has, that James has. Um, actually, one of my favorite quotes, let me read this quote from Steve Jobs' biography to you that Steve Jobs had. He says, I hate it when people call themselves entrepreneurs when what they're really trying to do is launch a startup and then sell or go public so they can cash in and move on. They're unwilling to do the work it takes to build a real company, which is the hardest work in business. That's how you really make a contribution and add to the legacy of those who went before you. You build a company that will still stand for something a generation or two from now. That's what Walt Disney did and Hewlett and Packard and the people who built Intel. They created a company to last, not just to make money. That's what I want Apple to be. So there's two thoughts here. These are the people I admired most. It's amazing what they were able to do. And the other thought is, I don't know what it would be like to be able to turn down. Like, let's say I build a business and someone offers me $200 million for it. Like, hopefully, I would have, assuming that I thought this was the best idea I'm going to have in my life and something that's really important to me, I'd have the wherewithal to, to, to choose the route that other people like Steve and Sam and James and Les did. I would be lying to you if I was sure for not. Especially if you grow up without a lot of money. Like, that's very hard. I have to, to, like, I, what I'm saying is, like, I don't want to judge other entrepreneurs that choose a different route. You know what I mean? Now, there's a difference between, like, I think so, a lot of new uh, entrepreneurship is, like, really creating financial instruments more than, than businesses. That's different. But I, I just don't think I'd be in a position to be like, oh, I can't believe that person sold his company when he could literally set his entire family, like, give financial stability to his entire family. You know what I mean? Like, I understand that. And it'd be super hypocritical for me to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, I would never do that. I would just automatically, like, no one's ever waved $200 million in front of my face or whatever the number is, $60 million, whatever. Like, I completely understand that. Um, so I'm just telling you, like, this is what I admire. And I hope if I'm ever in that position, like, I'd, I, I would, you know, have the courage. Because I think it's really, really hard to do what they're doing. Um, but admirable. So I, I don't know if that, that stream of consciousness made any sense other than like I understand both sides of it. Um, 
Back to Les, he says most companies, essentially this part I'm going to read to you, most companies put the emphasis on the wrong part. He says, we are different from most of the, of the American corporations as we think the most important people in the company are the people on the firing line, the ones who sell, do the service work, and take care of the customer. Most American corporations have the fat salaries and outrageous bonuses for the top people and treat the people at the end of the line as peons. I guess that is why if you're, this is hilarious. I guess that is why if you're on the ball, you can beat them on any type of fair competitive basis. He's saying they have their, their like, one, I think this is a huge problem in like a society level if that, if that trend continues. If you see that the workers get crapped on and the, the people that are so far removed from the customers make, you know, these golden parachutes that, we, that we've seen a lot in the last decade. But I love what James is saying. He's like, it's good that they're putting the emphasis on the wrong part. That tells you that they're shitty at business. And he says, that is why if you're on the ball, you can beat them on any type of fair competitive basis. Les did not have, there was other competitors that had better relationships with suppliers, had more assets, had more money, more everything. And he's saying, I'm going to beat them because they don't know what they're doing. They're playing pretend. I know what I'm doing. I mean, he proved that he knew what he was doing. Oh, I forgot to tell you this at the beginning. He, he didn't write it to publish a book. He wrote it for and, and self-published it. He self-published it and only sold it in stores. But it became like a cult classic that he did. I, I have, I'm holding in my hand the third printing, and it's the last printing, according to the, this. this and they sold 20,000 of them. So it's not a lot in circulation. But essentially, he wrote the book for his employees as a guide to, to carry on the, the, the business after he's dead. It just happened to have like, uh, like interest to outside people. So I think it's, um, if you're running a company, you should pick this book up. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Hopefully, you found this interesting. But Mung, if Munger's telling you to read the book, just read the book. Um, so anyways, he's got a, a bunch of theories and stuff that I'm not going to cover here. Just obviously picking out things that were interesting to me. So he says, do a gusto. A mistake a lot of businessmen make is to shotgun their advertising. By this, I mean they spend a few dollars on newspaper ads, a few dollars on programs, a few dollars here, and a few dollars there. You can't be effective that way. Whatever you do, you must do it with gusto. You must do it in volume. So if, in his case, radio advertising was the first big hit for him. He says, for example, radio. One ad, ad isn't worth a damn. But 10 ads per day for 30 days gets attention. It's a case of repeat, 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 repeat. All right, so that's his advice. Do it with gusto. And I love this section. He says, I'm optimistic about the future in spite of everything. If we are smart, if we earn our way, if we do the job, then the future will be optimistic to us. I am 68 years old now. He actually winds up living till about 89. And I've run it in overdrive my whole life. I've been in business for 34 years, and I think back a lot. In writing this book, memories come back, and you wonder why so many things happened. How in the hell did Les Schwab become the best-known tire name in the Northwest? How did these things happen, and why? Will changes come in the future that will just reverse these happenings? Will it always work out in our favor? And how did we break away from the pattern and go what, and go with what we know today is the Les Schwab way. That wasn't the way the big rubber companies wanted us to do it. We were ahead of the times. The large rubber companies turned out to be our best friends. Why? Because of their ways, their policies broke their dealers, often leaving us as the only dealer in town in a position to give service. This we know for a fact. When we create our programs, when we create our policies, and when we follow our programs and our policies, we will make money. We will always remain strong as long as we have the ability to create. If we fail to create, then we will die on the vine 
like so many other companies have done in the past. And that's where I'm going to leave the story. If you want the full story, read the book. And if you want to read the book and support the podcast at the same time, buy the book using the link that's in your show notes or at founders, uh, are available at founderspodcast.com. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you next week.